0: Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of On The Blood Trail. My name's Tyler, I'll be your host. Uh, Hopefully you guys are having a pretty good new year so far. I know we're pretty fresh into 2021, and there's a lot of time left to see how this year is going to pan out. If you caught our last podcast, you would have heard about how our 2020 season went, uh, and a little bit of a preview of how our 2021 is hopefully going to go. In that podcast... Uh, I talked about how the cherry on top for our 2020 season, in my eyes anyway, was an Arizona coos deer hunt. Uh, first time I'd ever gone after a deer. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, I came home with a really nice buck and with my bow on top of that. Uh, so for today's topic, we're going to dive into this coos deer hunt. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about coos deer hunting in general, uh, how to be prepared, what to expect, and uh, then we'll dive into the story as uh, far as how my hunt unfolded. Can't wait to uh, get into this. So we'll talk here a little bit first about how this trip actually came to happen. Um, We had planned a family trip down to Arizona uh, just to spend some time as a family. Uh, I always know that around that time of the year in December, January is when my dad likes to go after uh coos deer with his bow, uh, if he hasn't already gotten one with a rifle. Uh, you need a, a draw to get a tag for a coos deer with a rifle in Arizona as a non-resident. Uh, I'm pretty sure there might be areas there that residents would need a draw too. I'm not entirely sure as we don't hunt there very often. Um, so he planted the seed, said hey, when you come down you should bring your bow, we could go after coos deer, they're an awesome trophy, they're a lot harder than you realize they are to hunt. So yeah, he just planted that seed, uh, left it alone for a little bit. Every so often he'd bring it up, say, hey, uh, what do you think about coming down for this hunt? And after a little while, he was telling us that our good friend Mark, who had been sitting uh, hunting for these deer almost every day, was just seeing incredible numbers. And it was starting to make me a little bit more interested and he'd keep bringing it up. And he was telling me that the drought conditions were pretty substantial this year. and it was an anomaly for previous years because most years there's there's pretty good uh, amounts of water the deer have a lot of different areas that they can go to to get their water they don't have to water as often uh, stuff like that but this year there was a very few select watering holes that were actually filled with water and some of them were starting to dry up so your your chances of seeing these deer numbers was actually quite high and Just like hunting anywhere, if you hunt long enough and hard enough, eventually a a good or a big buck will make a mistake and come by while you're sitting there waiting for them. So, after telling me about these drought conditions and how I had to come down and I had to bring the bow and make sure that we tried to take advantage of this because this wasn't going to happen next year, potentially not for many years. um, He persuaded me. So, got the bow all ready, packed up and ready to go on an airplane and uh, decided to embark on this hunt. Now, getting into coos deer hunting, you're gonna wanna make sure you are practiced up with your bow. Um, I'm not gonna really touch on how to hunt them with a rifle, I've never tried it with a rifle, I know that there's a whole lot of other conditions and uh, difficulty associated with hunting these deer with a gun but today we're just gonna focus on the bow hunting aspect of it and uh, it's it's a difficult animal. Now, for hunting whitetails at home here in Alberta, a lot of it with a bow, you're just sitting in a tree stand. They'll come by you at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards, I guess. But they're also a lot bigger of a target. Now, these coos deer, they are very, very small. Uh, our deer here are probably twice the size. I mentioned that in the last podcast, which means that your kill zone shrinks significantly as well. The other part of it is it's different conditions. We were going down there with the intention of hunting off the ground. Uh, hunting on the ground is different than hunting in a tree. Just There's so many different aspects uh, to consider. Uh, another reason why you would want to practice quite a bit is uh, just because of how jumpy these deer are. Like I'm sitting down there and I, I witnessed these deer run away from quails. I've witnessed them run away from crows, cows... Mule deer, each other, the wind would pick up, they'd take off. Uh, Actually, there was a group of deer came in and uh, a few of them got down to the water and one in the back kicked a rock that rolled down the hill towards the water and they all took off running. Like They're just, they're so on edge. They come in looking for danger. So they're already on pins and needles, the tiniest little movement or stick break or kick of a rock and they're gone. So you want to be prepared for all of these different possibilities because you never know what's gonna happen right in the moment when you want to take a shot uh, the other reason to stay practiced up is it's just good to stay practiced you want to be familiar with your equipment familiar with the motions uh, it's really important another thing that uh, this was the first time for me traveling with my bow on a plane check your bow after you get off the plane they actually the airline broke my bow case and If they're breaking your bow case, there's a good chance that that amount of force is going to do something with your sights or your rest or who knows, but it's going to cause some different trajectory from your arrows. So we get out to the camp and I'm actually uh, pulling my bow out to take some shots at 50 yards because our expected shooting range was going to be 50 yards and my arrows are uh, quite a bit to the left. And so I decide, okay, well, let's let's move this sight a little bit more. We didn't have time. We were trying to get into the, the spot to hunt so that our friend Mark could uh, sit for the evening. So I left my bow at camp. Uh, when we got back that night, I moved my sight a little bit to the right to compensate for uh, my arrow movement. And I didn't think to shoot it further back, like back at 50 yards, 60 yards. Just because it was dark, I didn't have a whole lot of... Uh, Uh, Lighting to be able to make further shots, so I shot it at closer ranges everything looked like it was perfect and uh, I decided I was ready to go hunt and You'll notice once you get to watch the video that probably would have been a smarter idea Definitely would have been a smarter idea to do a little bit more shooting at a distance uh, Just because when you move something at at closer ranges, you're not going to notice much of a difference, but at a further distance Um, and especially when you factor in changing conditions like wind uh, it could be quite a bit different uh, of an impact from where you were practicing and uh, you'll notice when I shot my deer that the impact wasn't exactly where I wanted. Uh, Another reason why you want to be practicing and this is a really good item to focus on is being able to be comfortable enough with your draw weight and your draw length that you can pull back inch by inch until you're at full draw a lot of times people pull back this amazing amount of weight because they know that it's ample to take an animal down but they also need to make a ridiculous amount of movement to get to full draw and these coos deer they don't allow for that you got to be able to pull back so slowly so that they're not noticing this bulk of movement and then all of a sudden it it just triggers them and, and they're gone and you don't want that so you want to be able to pull back super slowly and uh... i'll I'll dive into why that's so important a little bit later when we talk about how the hunt went so the next thing you want to focus on with uh, going after these animals is your hunt setup and your techniques and uh... a lot of these are going to be similar to how you hunt other animals but uh... it it might be heightened or more focused on uh... hunting coos deer now you gotta choose whether or not you're spot and stalk hunting uh, hunting over a watering hole or just hunting a travel corridor or a trail. Uh, Now, spot and stalk, I have no idea how you'd spot and stalk these deer. It would be next to impossible. You need to have absolutely no sound from walking around. Uh, The wind would have to be perfect, just like spot and stalk on any animal, except these ones here are ready to take off and and they're not gonna give you much of an allowance as far as sound or movement. Uh, Hunting them on trails, where we were in the desert, and the conditions of uh, how the watering was just so poor for them, uh, they're coming from everywhere and anywhere. So it's it's very hard to narrow down a, a specific trail. I know when we were sitting there, we had them come in for probably miles upon miles, and they would come as an entry point into the watering hole, and it would be from six or seven different directions. So you wouldn't be able to just sit in one spot and anticipate them to come in. Now, you could sit there and expect them to come into the same spot but there was no guarantee of where they were coming from and that would have made it very difficult to uh, not only see animals but to get a shot off now the water hole part of it is what we decided to focus on so we sat on the edge of a watering hole uh, we had decided that we were gonna have to make a a 50 yard shot to make this count um, now there was another spot Where it was a 30 yard shot but you were a lot closer to where the animals were coming from and you weren't given very much for movement or noise. Um, And not necessarily that noise would be an issue because if you're still hunting or quiet hunting you're not going to be making a lot of noise but it's that movement that they'll notice and and they don't like that. So now when you find where you're going to be sitting the, the biggest problem that we found was blind setup. Now you're sitting there and you want to be concealed and the biggest part of being concealed is having a lot of stuff in between you and the animals but giving yourself the ability to make the shot just the same as any other animal you'd be hunting now we had built a blind or mark had uh, built a blind out of a whole bunch of dead sticks or live sticks and branches and we would just kind of mesh it together as a wall and that way we had some Barrier between us and the animals now it was very see-through and a reason why we would struggle sometimes is because The sunlight and the way that the shadows worked They would shine right through your blind and you wouldn't be able to get away with any movement because they would notice a shadow move and Like they're they're drinking with their eyes up like you don't There's no mistaking the fact that when they come down to drink They don't let their guard off their guard actually heightens in my opinion so you want to make sure you're brushed right in and uh, you want to give yourself um, an ability to be able to move a little bit. The other part of your blind setup is is putting it in a spot where you know that the wind is not going to ruin your hunt. Uh, We ran into this a few times where uh, we're sitting, there's a mountain in the background and uh, in front of us, in front of the watering hole or I guess behind the water hole, uh, it was very open and flat now, at different times of the day, with the way that the thermals work, your wind would come in and swirl and pull and push the wind and uh, it would come down into the watering hole and blow the completely wrong direction. And it was very frustrating because you could see these deer off in the distance. They wanted to come in water, but they knew that there was something that didn't smell right. And they'd still come in eventually but it would be the does and the little bucks that would come in and you wouldn't a big buck comes in and he smells something bad he's gonna go back and lay under a tree until dark and then that's when he's gonna come in because you're not there he doesn't smell you anymore and it's safe so you want to make sure that the wind is in your favor Uh, another good point to this like we tried sitting up in this uh, the blind set up at 30 yards and uh, it was great for a shot opportunity but as the day would go on, the wind would get progressively worse. And the wind would fan out after so many yards, and then really you would just be wasting your time. So we'd have to go and switch back and forth. So if you can have a situation where you can bounce back and forth between two blinds if the wind is bad, not a bad option to consider either. The other part with having your blind in a good spot is so that your your visible movement is very, very minimal. Uh, you want to make it so that you're able to when it comes time to move and grab your bow and get pulled back without being spotted Um, and i know that that sounds like something that everybody should just know to do but it it seems to be something that's even more present and more pressing uh, when you're hunting these animals because they're just they're so keen on everything Uh, And and then making sure that your line of sight is good. Like when we're sitting on a watering hole, you have deer coming in from so many different angles. And when we were sitting in our 30-yard blind, it was basically you're sitting there and all of a sudden there's a deer in front of you. We were so brushed in from seeing where these deer were coming from that you didn't really have much of an idea if they were coming. Uh, A lot of times we actually relied on, uh, on sound. And you would hear these deer walking in because a lot of times they come in in a big group. Uh, of at least five or six or more and sometimes we've seen up to thirty and i know that sounds like a lot and it is a lot it's a lot of eyeballs a lot of ears and uh... it makes it very difficult to do anything when you're sitting there But our sight line in the thirty yard blind was very very small and you wouldn't really know unless something was right on top of you that it was there uh... versus when we were sitting in our fifty yard spot you could see them coming from everywhere but the disadvantage of that too is uh, they could probably see you from a long ways as well. Uh, another good thing to keep in mind is making sure that your surrounding terrain also helps you from, uh, or for being concealed. Uh, we would sit up with a hill as a backing and a lot of other brush and that seemed to help us. Wearing proper camouflage is also a good thing. Uh, Now when it comes to picking a certain brand, or style, or uh, pattern of camouflage, I don't really know what to tell you, we're not sponsored by any one brand in particular. I like camo that has a lot of different shapes and shades. Uh, I find that that kind of gives you an advantage because it breaks up your figure. And that's the whole point of camouflage, you just don't want to look like a a solid object sitting there. Uh, Another really important thing is... uh, (laughs) a face covering so in the early morning was our best time and you wanted to make sure you gave yourself the most opportunity to succeed and as the sun would peek up over the hill or over the ridge uh, it would just shine all over your face and you wanted to make sure that you didn't have uh, all that reflection from your face because it was actually quite bright and the deer would come in and it would be like looking at a light bulb for them so wearing a, a face covering or some sort of a camel mesh or mask or whatever, it would actually really help with concealing your um, your spot. And we found that if you could keep your face covered in the morning like that, that it would just give you a better chance of them coming in and being a little bit more relaxed. Uh, now as the day went on and the sun poked up over the, the very top of the sky, you would actually get away with a lot more because your shadows are a lot less existent. Uh, you don't have your sun poking through the blind and showing every little bit of movement and it would help that way but in the morning time it was very very important to make sure that you had everything in your favor so covering your face in the morning in the sunlight and uh, just making sure you didn't have all the shadows and movements through your blind uh, it just helped us a lot uh, the biggest thing too is just making sure that you had the ability to get away with the necessary movements um, especially drawing your bow uh, because when these animals come in they're looking around and they they pick up on everything uh, they spook from birds taking off from the ground uh, just so you, you got to think in a game where you're trying to get away with with just inches of movement you got to get away with pulling your bow back uh, 28 30 inches and uh, moving and getting it lined up on these animals so in a game of inches you're trying to get away with feet and it's very very difficult Uh, so you want to make sure that your blind is set up and that you're set up in a way where you don't have to reach over five feet to grab your bow and then swing it all the way up and over to where you're going to be aiming and then try to pull it back and and just make a a big exaggerated amount of movement Uh, you want to be able to do everything as stealthily as possible Another item that almost everybody is going to overlook, unless you've done it before, Uh, I know that it was something that I didn't really consider, and luckily for me, uh, I did over-prepare. I try to always over-prepare. It's better to have more than you need than not enough. Uh, But it's the weather conditions. You're going down to hunt in Arizona. You think, okay, well, it's Arizona. It's a hot climate. Um, And yeah, that is true. But the thing that you don't realize is when it's winter there, it is winter for them. And just because I'm coming from a place where winter is a couple feet of snow and extreme drops in temperatures, uh, it doesn't mean it changes going down there. They do see a considerable amount of temperature change. Uh, In the winter, the desert is cold. And if you get high enough in elevation, you can actually find snow. Uh, Now, we weren't quite that high, but where we were, the elevation was a lot higher than uh, most areas. And at nighttime, you would see it drop below freezing. Uh, Actually, almost every morning we'd go in and the water would have ice on it. Now, it's not that cold all day. As soon as it gets uh, the sun is up and uh, you reach those midday temperatures, it is considerably hotter. Uh, Now, in Celsius, you go from right around freezing in the morning and in the afternoon, it would be in the low 20s. So, it's kind of difficult to dress for that and a lot of what I would compare it to would probably be uh, sheep hunting in the mountains in the end of August for us, uh, or even September elk hunting as, uh, September gets a little later on. Uh, it goes from pretty cold in the morning with that sunrise sag to pretty hot in the afternoon and you're, uh, trying to shed layers so that you're not sweating. Uh, now Arizona was very much like this. So, uh, And the other part of it, too, is when the sun goes behind a cloud or behind the mountain or it's windy, it is quite a bit colder. Now, it just seems like the desert doesn't hold the heat near as much uh, at night or uh, when the sun is just not beaming down on you. So you get all of your heat from the sun and really nothing from the ground. So making sure that you have a lot of layers, uh, not necessarily a lot of layers, but the right layers, uh, is very important. I made sure that we went down and you had a couple of base layers, uh, and then you have some mid layers and some uh, thicker over layers, just so that you're not sitting there and freezing because it's so much more difficult to make a shot with any anything, a, a bow or a gun. It's hard to shoot when you're cold, and uh, so made sure we were dressed more than enough, and uh, that way you could always shed layers if you're getting a little bit too warm. Now the biggest thing, crunch time comes, you got a buck coming in, you want to make a shot count. Super slow movements, you got to be observant, you got to be looking around and, and trying to pick out the tiniest little bit of movement. A lot of times these deer come in, uh, especially the bucks, they'll hold up just out of range looking to see what's going on. Now if you're not paying attention and you don't notice that they're there and you go to move around because you're feeling restless or your legs falling asleep and you move your leg, they'll catch that and they might not come in at all. And a lot of times if they do come in, they're coming in and they're extra alert and they're not gonna give you any ounce of movement. So you wanna make sure that any movements you do are super slow and just be observant. Now on the bucks coming in that you wanna shoot, the big thing here is is pay attention to this deer's body language. They're going to come in and they're going to be a little bit alert and, and they're going to be looking for everything. That's not the time to draw your bow back. Now, if they're not paying any attention to where you are, you could probably get away with starting to grab your bow, getting it ready, and and slowly getting into the, the mode where you're going to draw back. You want to make sure that they drop their guard down even just a, a half a step. And at that point, you'll probably be able to get away with making that amount of movement necessary to get to full draw. Now just because they've let their guard down a little bit doesn't mean you're going to have a whole lot of time. When you get drawn back you want to make sure you get yourself as comfortable and as steady as possible as quickly as possible because a lot of times these deer come in they're going to take a couple slurps of water and they're going to be gone. They know that they shouldn't be there but they have to be there and as soon as they feel like they have no need to be there anymore, they don't want to be. And they're going to be turning around and they're going to head for the hills. And uh, you're not going to have a chance to shoot at them. So you want to make sure if they're coming in, you get to the point where you're, you're reading their body language. You know they're going to let their guard down just enough for you to get drawn back. You get drawn back and you find your spot. You hold for it and you let that arrow go and hopefully connect on an awesome shot. Now I know there's a lot of variables that could be considered for this too, uh, especially if they come in with other deer and a lot of the times when our deer came in that you have so many deer coming in and you got a lot of eyeballs to uh, worry about but most importantly you're trying to make sure the deer that you want to make a shot on is uh, the one that's going to allow for you to make these movements. Uh, So you want to kind of make sure you're paying attention to everything but solely on the one that uh, you're wanting to shoot at the same time it's kind of a lot to juggle and you just want to take advantage of the situation and make your shot count okay so I know some of you are probably like okay man get on with it I already know how to hunt so let's just get into the story of how I was able to connect on this coos deer hunt and uh, kinda give you the rundown start to finish on how this went down so as I mentioned before uh, we got to camp, uh, I shot my bow a couple times at 50 yards, wanted to make sure that the airplane guys uh, didn't bump it around too much and uh, they did knock it off so decided not to bring the bow into the stand that night. We went and sat for Mark, uh, saw a couple nice bucks, couldn't make it happen. I uh, got back to camp that night and uh, shot my bow a few more times after adjusting the pins and it seemed like it was really good so I was confident that we were going to be able to make a good shot uh, the next morning we get into our spot, we're set up and, uh, just start waiting and deer start funneling in. It's going really well. Uh, as the morning progresses, we have a couple of smaller bucks come in. And now I knew that I wasn't going to have, uh, ample time to hold out for a giant. So I went down there. I had in my mind that I was going to shoot, uh, what they would call a nice two by two Uh, for us we would call that uh, a two point with brow tines so a three by three and so my my expectations i didn't want to shoot a a small four corn i didn't want to shoot a spike i wanted to shoot something that had a frame and uh, so we passed quite a few deer that were just four corns or spikes Uh, and then a couple of nicer bucks uh, two by twos with brow tines uh, come in And they funneled down the hill. It was kind of chaos because a lot of deer came in at the same time. Uh, I think there was probably anywhere from a dozen to 15 or 16. It was a lot to keep an eye on and try and figure out which deer were coming or going. And which ones uh, hadn't been down to the water yet. And which ones were new. Uh, And then all of a sudden the two bucks popped in. So it was uh, a lot to keep an eye on all at once. Uh, Now these bucks were milling around kind of taking a drink and I, I wanted to, to shoot one of them and I just felt like I couldn't even get into a position to grab my bow and get it ready uh, now after a little while I was able to get my bow raised up uh, get my release clipped on my D loop uh, went to draw back and I don't even think I got to half draw and one of the deer caught my movement startled and the bucks both, based on that other deer startling, turned around and started to head for the hills. So that it was kind of frustrating that way. And now a bunch of those deer stuck around and kept drinking. The bucks didn't come back down. And then all of a sudden I saw this really nice buck making a way from over top of the hill to come down to water. And I, I told the guys, I said, yeah, yeah, we got a nicer buck coming. And he starts coming down the hill, kind of jogs to the right. And as he starts to come back down to the left, I had about ten sets of eyes that I was trying to navigate as I was getting ready to pull back. And he starts to come down to water. I managed to get to full draw. and I'm like, man, that felt pretty good. I was But the thing was is I was like it's it's not like it's a huge deer that's gonna rattle me, but I think it was the fact that I had to try and outsmart all 10 or 12 of these deer at once. To be able to make the shot count, and it got me, it got my nerves going, and I was pretty rattled at the point when I was at full draw, and when I took my shot at this deer, uh, my arrow went into the dirt to the right of him, and in the moment I was thinking, oh man, maybe my nerves got the best of me. Uh, you practice lots, you want to be able to make those shots, and it just it didn't work, it didn't happen, and the deer took off. Well, actually, all of them took off over the hill. And uh, that was that. I rode off that chance. Day 2 rolls around and we get set up. We decided that I was going to go sit in this spot that was 30 yards from where the deer were drinking as opposed to the 50 yard spot. Because after missing the deer at 50, decided well I'd like to give myself a better opportunity at a closer shot. And so I sat in this 30-yard spot while my dad and Mark were still sitting in uh, the 50-yard blind. Uh, Just it was a better angle for the camera, and Mark was content with sitting there as well. Deer start coming in, uh, a bunch of mule deer, and they come in to drink. And it was like, right away, I, I was sitting as still as possible, and they knew that I was there. They just came in, and the first thing they'd look at was me. And so after a couple of hours, we just figured, you know what, this isn't going to work. And uh, so I went back and sat in the, the blind with the other guys and more and more deer funneled in. Uh, we saw tons of action. There was so many deer coming in to get water. Uh, just nothing of size. Uh, there would be a few spikes here and there. I don't even know if we saw four corn on day two. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, and then Mark decided he wanted to go and sit at a different water hole. And uh, my dad and I went and sat back in the 30-yard blind. We brushed it in a lot better. thought we'd be able to get away with a little more movement. Uh, Now that night, a smaller four-corn came in. Uh, He just wasn't what I would have considered to be uh, a shooter size. Uh, And then a bunch of mule deer came in. And the way I was sitting, I was sitting on a chair uh, looking down at the water. My bow was between my legs over my, my lap with my release already sitting on the d-loop now my hand i was shooting a wrist release and i had my hand um, pretty much parallel with the ground Uh, these mule deer drinking i rolled my hand maybe an inch or two inches around the release and one of the mule deer all of a sudden looked up saw me and uh, it was just that tiny little bit of movement and they all took off uh now we were also fighting with the wind in that spot now like i had said before the as the day went on the wind was just not very consistent right there and at the end of the day a whole bunch of mule deer tried to come in and uh it just it didn't work something didn't seem right to them and uh, they took off so it was it was just apparent that it wasn't gonna happen that day so back to uh side by side and back to camp and regroup for uh Day three. Now, I know that a lot of people say, oh, you're only hunting for a few days. It doesn't, uh, it shouldn't be that difficult or it shouldn't be as dramatic as you make it sound. It, it was kind of weird because I knew that we were only sitting and hunting for a few days, but with as many deer as you were seeing, it felt like you were there forever. Uh, I'm used to sitting in spots where you would sit all day and maybe see a handful of deer and that's a good day for you. And it takes a lot longer for the day to go on. and Sitting for these coos deer, you're sitting on a watering hole seeing deer consistently, like all the time. Every other hour, uh, there's a whole whack of them coming in. I don't know if we went more than 45 minutes without seeing a deer. And so your day went by a lot faster, but you had a lot more, a lot more to remember as far as what came in, what left, what you didn't get a chance on, what you did. Uh, and so it made it seem like you were there for a lot longer than a few days. So day three, we went back... Um, sat up in the 30 yard blind because we thought the wind was going to be better to sit there Uh, so it's the same setup Uh, my dad and I are sitting there with the camera and all of a sudden there's a buck in front of me now we were kind of hoping the way that we were set up my dad was a little further behind me with the camera and he could see if deer were coming Uh, but there was a blind spot for him up in front to the left the same as it was for me and this buck must have just slipped in in this blind spot and he was big enough for what I wanted to shoot he goes to come down and I think maybe I I kinda panicked and he come in with a doe and I went to to draw back and I just got my arm lifted to pull back and he kinda looked up, looked around and I thought okay just hold it, hold it and then he went down to drink, he stuck his head down to the water and I went to pull my bow back, I got to half draw, and uh, I pulled back 70 pounds. So that's a lot of weight to hold at half draw. And he had dipped his nose down to the water, and then just immediately back up and straight up at us. And I'm holding at half draw, trying not to move, because this deer has got us pegged. And maybe in hindsight, I should have just kept drawing and hoped that he would have stood there. Uh, but he turned around, ran off, kind of out of our sight line, uh, he stood at, I think it was around 45 yards for a bit, but it wasn't a, an angle that I would get a really good shot off. And, uh, and then he was gone. So it, we, it was apparent to us at that point that it probably wasn't going to work in that spot. So we got up and went back down to uh, to the 50-yard blind. Now moving down to this 50-yard blind, it was, uh, I guess looking back at it, it was an excellent decision because we ended up getting a deer. We're sitting there. Uh, there's a lot more deer coming in. Uh, we had this kind of like a wash or a draw on our right side and it wasn't like a whole lot of deer that came from that direction most of our bucks came from directly across the water and up to the left and so we were mostly anticipating buck movement from over there we're sitting there and i look over mark and uh there's this four corn buck or spiker buck coming and he was gonna walk right into our blind i think if he kept going and I'm like Mark, Mark. There's a deer right in front of you. And as Mark turned his head, the deer saw him and turned around and ran. And right as he started to run, I noticed this really nice buck right behind him. And because the little buck was the one that spooked, the big buck didn't see us, and and he took off right behind the little buck. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, maybe they'll come back in. A lot of these deer, if they spook, they'll come around from a different angle, try to catch a different wind or a different uh, line of sight on movement, and then they'll come down for a drink and relax. And so we keep sitting there, uh, more does start coming in, and all of a sudden I look down this draw, and here comes this little buck across the draw to go up the hill and start coming in from the, the backside. And I'm like, oh, come on, fingers crossed, this bigger buck's going to come in too, like they're together, there's no way that he he saw us, there's no way he busted us. Um, and I, we're sitting there waiting, waiting, sure enough, here comes this bigger buck, he's a big from what i could tell he was a big two by two with brow tines big frame Uh, looked like he had some pretty good mass and length i just knew in my mind if he gives me a chance i'm going to make a shot Uh, if i can get a shot off that is and he keeps looking behind him i'm thinking man maybe there's a bigger buck coming and uh, a couple other deer come behind they were either really small bucks or does and this small buck starts making his way down to the water he breaks through the trees, and uh, Mark was asking me, he's like, well, how big was the buck? I didn't get to see him. I'm like, well, he's big enough. I want to shoot him. And uh, this first buck comes through, and Mark's like, well, that, that's, uh, he's coming down. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a bigger one behind him. Mark's like, yeah, that one's way bigger. And so this other buck starts coming down to the water. He's a good deer, and uh, he starts to come down to take a drink. And as he's coming across to the water... I held my bow down in the bottom of our blind and came to full draw. Got my my hand to my anchor point and then swung over and lifted my bow up as this buck was coming right to the water. Uh, He put his head down. I got my pins focused on him. Uh, It was a quartering two shot which isn't ideal and it's a small target at 50 yards. I held my pin right where I wanted it, right where I thought it was a good shot. Squeezed my trigger as I let the arrow fly, it felt like a really, really good shot. But watching the arrow soar through the air and impact this deer, it was considerably far back compared to where I had wanted to hit. Now, I had said before that I wanted or I had fixed my sight, and uh, I wish I would have shot it at a further distance because it, I had obviously overcompensated just a little bit. And uh, at 50 yards, it seemed to be a lot more than what I had anticipated. Now, that being said, where my arrow connected, I took out this deer's kidneys and severed a main artery. And he bled like a faucet and didn't even make it 30 yards and piled up right in front of us. It was it was uh, nerve-wracking. I was shaking. I was speechless. Uh, it finally connected on this coos deer. I know I said it was only a few days of hunting but it felt like it was forever. We overcame obstacles of missing deer, not being able to pull uh, the bow back on deer, and to finally get the, the draw and the shot and watch the deer go out, go down in front of me. I, my, my heart's starting to beat right now pretty hard because I'm reliving this. Uh, it was an exceptional uh, hunt. It was awesome, and uh, I can't wait to do it again. And to put my hands on it, uh, a deer to make Pope and Young is 70 inches, uh, my buck scored. Uh, Gross scored just over 82, and uh, I think even net he would have still been over Pope and Young. Uh, he was uh, three points on one side by four points on the other. He had kind of a little abnormal point. Uh, you can see pictures of it on the Instagram page uh, or Facebook, whatever you're following on. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was an awesome hunt uh, to be able to watch the deer go down in sight uh was a pretty pretty awesome feeling and uh yeah that was uh the gist of how how that hunt went down and uh can't wait to try it again i'd really like to go after him with a rifle i know it's a lot of uh high range shooting and a lot of hiking and all that and it would be a different method of doing this and i would like to give that a try i think your chances are a little bit higher at finding a, a bigger buck uh but Comparably speaking, an uh, 82 inch coos, they say add 60 inches to your score and that would be about what it would be if it was a, a northern white tail. So it would be like the equivalent of me shooting a 140 buck in uh, Alberta here with a bow. And I haven't even done that yet, so I was pretty excited to be able to connect on a fantastic coos deer. I think that I'm also not really understanding what kind of a trophy I'm in possession of now and uh, it'll take some time, some years of hunting them and failing uh, for me to realize what I've actually accomplished. I'm just happy to be able to be in company of some people that have managed to get this done. Uh, Another difficult thing would be uh, spot and stalk. I'd love to give it a try, but I don't think I'd be much good at it. Uh, I don't think of myself as uh, nearly as stealthy as what it would take to pull off getting a coos deer with a bow, but I'd look forward to trying that someday too that said i hope you enjoyed the podcast i hope you enjoyed listening to uh, my excitement of taking down my first coos buck uh, with a bow Uh, it was an incredible experience an awesome hunt uh, one that i would highly recommend to anybody to go try you get to go down to arizona uh, you buy a hunting license you buy a non-resident deer tag it's good for a coos buck or a mule deer buck so whatever came in i was if it was a good deer either way i was going to be happy to take a shot just so happened that the coos deer numbers uh, that we've seen were much higher as far as bucks were concerned. And I was able to get a shot on a nice coos buck. I wouldn't have been disappointed if it was a nice mule deer buck. Um, A desert mule deer is actually pretty high up on my bucket list of animals to go after. Uh, Maybe one of these years we'll get to try. But until then, I guess uh, just keep reliving this coos hunt. Uh, Like I said, give it a try if you get the chance the coos deer is just such a cool trophy Uh, they taste fantastic i think they taste even better than our northern whitetails might just be because of all the excitement and uh, you just have it in your head that yeah this is awesome Uh, which it is i wouldn't knock it until you try it Uh, but that's uh, all i've got for this podcast thank you guys so much for listening if you liked it please go find us on instagram uh, or facebook or check out our youtube channel uh, keep an eye on the YouTube channel. Keep an eye on Slagger Outdoors. You'll get to see this coos deer hunt unfold on video. Uh, it's an awesome hunt to watch. Thanks so much for listening and uh, catch you on the next podcast.